following podcast is brought to you by Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity. Dedicated to standing firm for the ancient faith and against the ancient foe until Christ is all in all. Greetings and welcome to Standing Firm. I'm your host, James Brown Jr., pastor at Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity. We are so thankful that you have taken the time out of your busy schedule to listen to this podcast, and we hope that it will be a help and a blessing to you. You can find out more about Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity at reformedholytrinity.org. That is reformedholytrinity.org. We hope that you will go over to our webpage and learn more about Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity. And if you live in the south central area of Indiana, we invite you to come worship with us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And when you do, we hope that you will go give us a review even if it is not a five-star review, because we are not seeking to have everyone like us. Our, Our purpose here is to faithfully proclaim the truth and to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But we do hope that you will continue to listen to this podcast and that you will join us Um, each and every time a new podcast drops. Now, today we are going to be dealing with a very important topic. And we live in a day and age where there is a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion and, quite frankly, just a lot of kookiness. And so we are going to be dealing with this subject when everyone is a teacher. Because we live in a day when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes because everyone's a teacher. The problem is that it is producing chaos in the church and the peace and quietness of the church is being disturbed because there is no authority. Now, quite frankly, there are a lot of reasons for this, some of which belongs at the feet of the church. Uh, We have lost our authority and in many cases it is a natural end because of our own sin. But there's also a lot of rebellion in this day in which we live. With social media, podcasts, and live streams mixed with this radical independentism, this autonomy, and antinomianism, we live in a day when anyone can ordain themselves as an authority, even as they speak against anyone having authority. There are some who speak against pastors, teachers, or any ecclesiastical authority as they act in these formats as an authority in the church. It is rather confusing, but it is bringing great harm upon the already weakened church. And I am, for one, sick and tired of it. Over the years, we have attempted to be patient, taking the long view But mass hysteria that is continuing to build is producing anarchy and it's accelerating at mock speed. And there is no way even to keep up with these things um, by taking, unless you just take these errors head on, which is what we are attempting to do. In some upcoming podcasts, we are going to be 
taking on a wide range of perspectives, including Jonathan Merritt, Jen Hatmaker, and many others. But today we're going to deal with a teaching that was streamed on the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group on Facebook. The presentation was by Wyatt Graves, and I do not have any bio information. I do not know him personally, and uh, so forth. But he identifies himself as an, ab an, an abolitionist and a Reconstructionist. Now sometime in the future we will be addressing the issue of abolitionism and reconstructionism even though they are two separate distinct things but it really has no bearing on this topic that we will be dealing with today. Mr. Graves is presenting an egalitarian perspective and that's what we want to look at. Now the reason why I chose this specific presentation is because it is coming from a conservative group. We are hearing more and more liberal principles and argumentation in what would be considered conservative circles. So let's begin. And I will warn you that there are some periods that will try your patience. But I'm not going to speed it up or cut anything out lest we're accused of cherry picking and not giving them their due. So let's begin as we review this live streamed presentation. We need to figure out how these different scriptures I'm about to read reconcile with one another. We know they do, but they're not often read in light of one another. We don't usually consider this group of scriptures when we read this other group of scriptures. You'll see what I mean. So Proverbs 31 the woman chapter says in verse 25 and 26 strength and honor are her clothing and in the latter day she shall rejoice she opens her mouth with wisdom and the law of grace is on her tongue she opens her mouth with wisdom and the law of grace is on her tongue Matthew 20 Verse 25, <clears throat> Jesus called unto him and said, You know that the lords of the Gentiles have domination over them, that they are great and exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. So these two scriptures talked about all the time especially in the groups that we run with, talking about defying ecclesiastical authority, talking about defying civil authority, because Gentiles, what they do, they rule over each other. They exercise authority over each other because they truly believe that some people are more important than others. We, on the other hand, believe that we are each and every one of us precious because God made us in his image and not one one person is not inherently above or more important than the other <clears throat> but in in Christ there is no male or female Jew or Jew or Greek or any kind of distinction as to uh, who has the most authority or who is more important than the other 
So we've all read this. We've also all read uh, these other ones here. Now I can get, get to my... Okay. First Corinthians 14, verse 34. After he gets done talking about... Uh, speaking in tongues and prophesying and all that stuff and singing hymns all that he says in verse 34 let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted to, for ugh, sorry it is not permitted unto them to speak but they ought to be subject as also the law says and if they will learn anything let them ask their husbands at home for it is a shame for women to speak in the church and a similar admonition over here in 1 Timothy 2, I think 2, oh, 2, 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I permit not a woman to teach, neither to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and was in the transgression. This is what I meant by trying your patience. But we had to listen to all that to deal with the purpose of this presentation. However, there are two unrelated things that he deals with. First, let's deal with what was supposed to be the actual topic, which was the four passages of Scripture in question. The first passage was Proverbs 31, 25 through 26. The second was Matthew 20, 25 through 27. Third, 1 Corinthians 14, 34. And finally, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Now, before he gets into his interpretations of these passages, except for the brief eisegesis in Matthew 20, to make the church or ecclesiastical government and the offices of the church null and void, what we see here is a strange, and I mean very strange, combination of passages as if they are speaking about the same thing. Math, or Proverbs 20, uh, 31, 25, and 26, and actually just verse 26 because verse 25 has nothing to do with speech at all, Nevertheless, this passage is dealing with women in an individualistic sense. What is being modeled here in Proverbs 31.26 is for women to utilize wisdom and kindness in their individual speech. Proverbs 31 has nothing to do with preaching or teaching in the assembly of the saints. Matthew 20.25-27 20, also has nothing to do with women preaching or teaching in the church. It says nothing about the offices of the church, nothing about the polity of the church. It has only to do with attitude, specifically the air of superiority among the disciples of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 14.34, which should also include verse 35, does speak in prescriptive language concerning the issue of women teachers. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14 also deals with the 
issue of women speaking and holding authority over men in the congregation. However, Paul deals with this issue in 1 Corinthians from the law of God, and in 1 Timothy he deals with it in an ontological sense. Now the problem here is that these passages are different. Only two of the four are dealing with the same issue, and it is absurd to lump these passages together. You might as well just combine Matthew 27 verse 5 where it says that Judas went out and hanged himself and Luke 10:37 where Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. You just can't put any string of scripture together out of its context in order to build some kind of case like a lawyer does trying to get his guilty client off the hook. It is ridiculous and from an experiential point, only proves the need for sound, qualified, and authorized teachers. Also, in the midst of this strange concoction of home brew being fermented by the leaven of man-made traditions and commandments, Mr. Graves adds some commentary to Matthew 20 in order to do away with apostolic order, with a passage commanding humility and servant leadership, he takes it to undo tons of scripture directly or indirectly dealing with structure, authority, leadership, offices, and so on. Mr. Graves applies Matthew 20 to the office of pastor and deacon. Of course, doing away with the offices of pastor and deacon does make it a lot easier to negate the clear teaching of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. But let's continue on to see if he can make sense of all this. So, how does a woman, a, a virtuous woman, uh, how does she open her mouth with wisdom and have the law of grace or the law of kindness in some translations. How does she have that on her tongue? How does she teach that to people, but also be in silence and, su and subjection and not usurp authority over a man? Lots of people in here probably share this view with me that I do not believe that in uh, when we're talking about ecclesiastical authority, uh, church, government, whatever you want to call it. Um, as it's commonly understood and has been understood by most people for a long time, I don't believe the office of pastor or the office of uh, deacon or elder or overseer or whatever name you want to give it, I don't believe that to be legitimate. And there's several reasons for that, and we could talk about that. But most, lots of people in here agree with me. Mostly, uh, to summarize why I think that is because Jesus said right here when it was all getting started, the Gentiles rule over one another, but it shall not be so among you. So we're not supposed to rule over one another. So his argumentation against church government and offices is that we are not supposed to rule over one another because Jesus said the greatness of his disciples was not in their ruling, but in their serving. 
Notice Jesus did not say that there was no such thing as ecclesiastical rule or offices, but that our greatness is not found in our authority, but in our service. I mean, seriously, are you, Mr. Graves, going to use this verse to nullify other clear passages of Scripture, like Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, where we are commanded, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. How about Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 24, just a few verses later, where the writer of Hebrews says, Salute all them that have the rule over you. Hebrews 13, 7, earlier in that same chapter, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, and whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or behavior. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul, addressing the church at Thessalonica, says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace amongst yourselves. Paul, writing to the young pastor Timothy, states in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, serious folks, I have to ask, because this is seemingly becoming a theme with so many things I'm hearing anymore, and my response is, does anyone actually read the Bible anymore? Now, I know they use the search function on their Bible software to look up verses in order to string together in such a way as to make it say whatever they want it to say. But I'm talking about reading Scripture and allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Peter tells us that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation in 2 Peter 1.20. But Mr. Graves has came up with his own private interpretation because it is not the interpretation of the apostles. You do remember the apostles, right? Those men whom Christ commissioned to be his witnesses. You see, this is why John could write in 1 John chapter 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, how do we have fellowship with the Father? How do we have fellowship with Jesus? How do we have fellowship with the apostles? By the words and understanding that has been delivered unto us by the apostles, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Our Reformed forefathers were very adamant about the principles of Sola Scriptura. In the 1689 London Confession of Faith, it reads, 
The infallible rule of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which are not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Matthew 20 is not clear as to the governmental rule and offices in the church. For one, because it's not speaking about those things. But there are many other places that do speak to those issues and are very clear. To build a doctrine of anarcho-ecclesia from Matthew 20 is not only immature, but it is ignorant. But... Um, why should women be silent and why should they not teach over men we uh, if we if we study it enough when we study history enough we know that the church um, they took women into their into their fellowship and they they treated them in an entirely different way than the culture around them treated them Christians had a habit of doing that treating people in an entirely seemingly upside-down way than the world treated them. Uh, in, I think it's another place in 1 Corinthians. Let's, uh, if somebody knows where it is, yeah, go ahead and post it. But he tells them that it's a shame for the woman to pray or prophesy or gather with her head uncovered. And there is an Acts to the Root episode about that, which uh, I'll post in the link. But if Bojidar Marinov is correct, um, and he's not right there, right there in the scripture, we know it says that she ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Hi, Rebecca. She ought to have a symbol of authority or a symbol of power on her head, and that's what he calls the head covering. He doesn't clarify what that means or go into it too much, probably because he assumed that they knew what it meant. But it's been a few thousand years, and it's kind of unclear for us. Bo puts forth the idea that, <clears throat> or it may, it may have been fact. I admit that I haven't uh, examined this aspect, and it's not really what I even meant to talk about here. But hmm. the symbol of authority that was the head covering was worn in that culture by rich women or powerful women or wives of rulers or aristocrats or senators or uh, people who were high up there on the social ladder. They wore a head covering when they were out in public and with other people. And that is to signify that I'm a woman of importance. So uh, if you catch me, if you rape me, or if you, if you hurt me and uh, assault me, then there will be consequences because I'm a powerful person. But women of lower class weren't allowed to wear these head coverings. So people considered them fair game if they wanted to catch them and sell them into prostitution. They wanted to just rape them and then leave them on the side of the road. There wouldn't be too many repercussions because it wasn't illegal. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't penalized. And uh, they didn't have any had, didn't have any pull in the society. They weren't very powerful. But Paul tells them to do something illegal and says that it's a shame that you all, all of you, 
all of you women do not wear head coverings because you ought to have a symbol of power on your head. But that's not even what I want to talk about. Sorry. Oh, my word. I mean, what the heck is he even talking about? So you could rape a woman in the Roman Empire as long as she wasn't wearing a head covering? I mean, where are they coming up with this stuff? Now, I know that was a long clip to take in, but I, I did not want to break his flow and be accused of not letting him speak in full context. So we may have to play some parts again, but he, he begins by asking why women should be silent and not teach over men. Now, you either have to be biblically or illiterate or have an agenda not to be able to answer that question rather quickly and simply. Apparently, he did not learn the song that says, How do I know? The Bible tells me so. How about the passages you already cited, beginning with 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, which says, Let your women keep silence in the churches. In the plural, he's writing to one church. But we know that the apostolic epistles were universal for all the churches because they distribute them amongst the churches for their edification and guidance. So he says, let your women keep silence in the churches, plural, not just in the Corinthian context, but in all the context of the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. So this goes back to the revealed will of God in the law, that they are not in the assembly to teach or usurp authority over men, but to be in obedience. And then verse 35 says, And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. So let's see here. The silence that Paul is commanding has to do with speaking with authority. As he says, they are to be under obedience. It is fairly easy to discern that Paul is saying that women are not to speak in the sense of authority, as in preaching and teaching in the church. But another passage you cited, which is even clearer in 1 Timothy chapter 2, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach. In other words, I don't allow a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So the women are to learn, which means that they are not to be teachers. And the silence Paul is speaking about is uh, teaching or usurping authority over the man. Now, it's also very clear here that for a woman to teach means that she is usurping authority over the man. We're talking about in a mixed assembly. But of all the difficult issues facing the church, this is not one of them. Because the Bible is clear 
and it is plain enough for anyone to understand who does not have an agenda to try to make it say something that it is not saying. Now, throughout Mr. Graves' whole presentation, all I could think is that I don't think that means what you think it means. But he even admits as much in our present clip. He brings up 1 Corinthians 11, talking about women praying in the assembly with their heads uncovered, and his authority for his interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 is an Acts to the Root podcast by Bojidar Marinov. But if that is what you want to go with, be my guest. Bo is wrong, and you are wrong for believing it, but if you are gullible enough to reject apostolic authority and 2,000 years of church guidance because you reject ecclesiastical authority, but then submit to ecclesiastical authority from Bojidar Marinov, then so be it. It does not make any sense, but not much does nowadays. 1 Corinthians 11 is seeking to establish the headship of man over the woman. The head covering, whether it is her hair, as referenced in verse 15, or whether it is a veil, as the Greek word indicates, we understand that the covering is an emblem or a symbol of her subjection to the man. Now, Mr. Graves is using Marinov to complicate and misdirect us as to the purpose of this chapter, which is stated very clearly, I might add, in verse number 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, the Greek word translated head means master, Lord, as it is used to describe Christ in relation to the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, where Paul writes, And God hath put all things under Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So the man is the head or the master or Lord over the woman, just as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, to attempt to come up with some other meaning than that which is plainly derived from the text is ludicrous, and no amount of fake history or revisionist interpretations will do the trick. Mr. Graves, can you document one true historical source that proves it was illegal um, for women, other than women of power, prestige, and position, to veil themselves? And that is assuming, of course, that Paul is talking about women veiling themselves, as we find in Genesis twenty-four sixty-five, when Rebekah was brought to Isaac, and it says that she took a veil, and she covered herself. Now, we do know that a veil is for covering, and was used by women to show submission and modesty, not power and wealth. For example, you can... Read more about this from Professor Mark Finney in the Department of Biblical Studies at the University of Sheffield in England. And he wrote that in the Greco-Roman context, that women, it would appear that when venturing outside the home, they would normally wear a head covering and a veil. Now, he also wrote for those elite or high status men 
taking a central role in sacrifices or worship. The Roman ethos was, or ethos was one in which the head was always covered. Continuing on, Finney wrote, Plainly, in the opinion of Virgil, the veil was a matter of lex sacra for pious Romans and could only be ignored at the, at the expense of offending the Roman gods and that a Roman sacerdotal official was not even allowed out of his home without a suitable head covering. Now, what Mr. Graves was referring to, although incorrectly, was also addressed in Mr. Uh, Finney's paper, Honor, Head Coverings, and Headship, where he wrote, These same constraints act, albeit with different manifestations, on the attire of women. The work of Caroline Galt, uh, Aline Rousseau, and Del Martin demonstrates that for the reputable Roman woman, the head covering served to protect her dignity, status, signifying a woman not to be propositioned. Roussel, in particular, claims that in the case of respected and uh, respectable women, although the veil was a symbol of subjection, it was also the badge of honor of sexual reserve and hence a mastery of the self. A veil or hood constituted a warning. It signified that the wearer was a respectable woman and that no man dare approach without risking penalties. Hence the attire of the woman had an impact on the honor of the men of whom she was related. The head covering for the woman had to do with subjection protection, and a symbol that she was not promiscuous or for hire. Now, summarizing his research, Finney wrote, It would appear that with respect to public non-liturgical head coverings, the available evidence relating to men is that they had the option of whether to be covered or not. But if covered, would, but if covered, would uncover on meeting an acquaintance. For women, the expectation was that, outside the home, they would be accompanied by a husband, melkin, servant, etc., and would have a head covering and possibly a veil. With respect to liturgical head coverings for men, the weight of evidence points more certainly to the fact that they were expected to be covered if playing a central role in worship. But for women, there may have been an element of choice depending on the presence or absence of non-kin men. So, we see that there was a difference in the Roman world between women who ordinarily wore a veil in public settings and men who primarily would wear one in religious worship. It is apparent that Paul's admonition has nothing to do with the Roman practice, but was based upon his statement in verse number 3 that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God, which is the reason why the man was not to pray with his head covered, and the woman was not to pray with her head uncovered. In verse 4 and 5, Paul would state that every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For it is even all one as if she were shaven. Now Paul's statements have to do with 
the with headship in the order of Christ, man, and then the woman. And it doesn't have anything to do with all the other things that Mr. Graves was talking about. Finney also has some relevant insights on the Hebrew and Jewish customs concerning head, covering, head coverings, where he wrote, Unlike the New Testament, the Old Testament has no single focused discussion of male and female head coverings. Although there are enough relevant scattered texts to grant us an informed picture. Now certainly, for the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament delivers numerous explicit stipulations regarding head coverings. And there are also a small number of texts that refer to the general head coverings of both men and women. The head coverings required of the priesthood are unambiguous. Every priest was expected to wear a headdress of fine linen, and the high priest was to wear his head covering continually. There were only exceptional circumstances in which a priest or high priest would uncover his head, such as disaster or bereavement. Continuing on, he writes, with regard to head coverings for non-priestly men, the Old Testament details, albeit at only a few points, the presence of a male head covering. The Levitical command that the hair of a leper's head is to be uncovered presupposes a male head covering. And the book of Daniel informs us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace still wearing their head coverings. Elsewhere, righteousness and justice are spoken of, poetically, as being clothed in a robe and a head covering, the assumption being that such ethical qualities are presupposed for the people of Israel. At the same time, however, other texts speak of a male putting on a head covering, particularly in times of distress. King David does so after hearing of the death of Absalom, and Haman returns home from his defeat by Mordecai, uh, grieving. The picture, then, is similar to the Greco-Roman context observed above. That is, a head covering is a prerequisite priestly vestment, and although the non-priestly male would normally adopt a head covering in public, there may be an element of choice in such apparel. And then he focuses, he focuses upon women in the Old Testament context, and he says women in general were expected to be seen in public as little as possible. A young unmarried girl may be allowed out without a head covering, but typically a father would attempt to keep an unmarried daughter secluded from men as a safeguard against the danger of promiscuity. The normal attire for married women in public, i.e. in situations where the woman may encounter male strangers, was the wearing of a head covering and a veil. As in the Greco-Roman context, it is a likely assumption that women did not wear a veil at home amongst kin. So, Paul was not drawing on the custom of the Israelites or the Jews either. Therefore, it is best just to let Paul define his own reasons as demonstrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. Bo puts forth the idea that, or it may, it may have been fact. I admit that I haven't uh, examined this aspect well 
maybe you should examine it before you use it as evidence for your view. I mean, goodness gracious, is that what we have come to in this day? So let's pick up where we left off. But that's not even what I want to talk about. Sorry. Um, let me find where I pulled up the Greek right here. Sorry. Wait for it. Wait for it. I guess I could sing for you okay. while we're waiting. Uh, no, that's not it either. Oh, here. Okay, here we go. In the verse in 1 Timothy, verse 2, 12, if we look at our Greek words, which we kind of have to, because this idea of subjugating women or uh, taking absolute authority over women hasn't been really shed by the church in large numbers. It hasn't been totally abandoned and rejected uh, with a with a really great consensus over over all these years. So when our English translators were translating the Bible, they kind of imposed their understanding of how women are to be treated onto the text and they mistranslated some things. And that happens all over the Bible with our English translations. So, And now it's time for the kooky conspiracy theories. Let's see here. Every English translation has gotten it wrong. Even the modern translations where women have served on the translation boards. You know, that sounds like some spiritual info wars coming up, but let's see what he has to say uh, concerning this, these things. It tells the woman that she sh shouldn't be doing two different things. Teach and usurp authority are two different things. And just because you teach someone something doesn't mean you have authority over them. And, doesn't, and just because you claim authority over someone doesn't mean you're a capable teacher. Actually, Paul is connecting teaching and authority. Now, whether or not you are a competent teacher has nothing to do with authority. When I was in college, I had some really good teachers and some really poor teachers, but all of them had authority to demand my attendance and to demand my instruction according to their rules and instruction, and also uh, according to their standards. To try to disassociate teaching and authority is to make teaching meaningless. But let's get to the conspiracy of incorrect translations for the purpose of perpetuating the, patri uh, the patriarchy because, as they say, inquiring minds want to know. So he tells them not to teach, and that word is didasco. I don't know how to pronounce that, but the word is didasco. And our dictionary tells us that it says that it means to hold a discourse with others in order to instruct them to deliver didactic courses, to be a teacher, to discharge the office of a teacher, or to conduct oneself as a teacher. 
or to teach one or to impart instruction, instill doctrine into one. Several different things, you get the idea. What I was thinking about this morning is if we were a fellowship group of abolitionists in the 19th century, in a time and culture where black people were subjugated and barred from educating themselves, uh, <clears throat> they were forbidden to learn how to read, or in many places they were forbidden to even attend uh, church services with white people. And a lot of other times they chose to not attend church services with white people and they just went over here to their uh, slave churches. And, and uh, there were a lot of Methodists, uh, blacks only churches, and uh, it was illegal for them to learn how to read in many places. Any ones who did teach themselves how to read were doing it uh, clandestinely. And so you expect that these black people won't be very skilled in uh, discourse or interpreting false or uh, discerning false doctrines from true doctrines or interpreting scripture, even if they're even if they're freed and they learn they learn how to read and they like begin to learn how to discern for themselves. They begin to learn private judgment and self-government. Uh, in that way, they've been treated like animals or treated like uh, treated like they were children who couldn't comprehend these things their whole life. So they're just at the beginning. And uh, so if if we are if we were in a church group and we had some freed former slaves with us in our in our fellowship with us um, these people weren't very astute in uh, interpreting things that they read interpreting scripture so we're supposed to be helping them along and teaching them how to read for themselves and teach themselves and govern themselves and uh, help them grow up you could say but still for a good amount of time, these black people probably shouldn't take a position where they teach others regularly. They, uh, or they shouldn't take a position of leadership because they're, at this point, they're infants in the faith. And because they're infants in the faith in this very special, unfortunate way, because they were treated like infants or like animals their whole lives. So these black people in this hypothetical situation probably shouldn't be in a position where they teach or uh, or uh, take some kind of authority over other people because they still have a long way to go. Okay. Uh, that was rather strange, and I have no idea what that has to do with our topic. And I really have no clue as to how that helps us see that our English translations are in error and what the proper understanding of the Greek text is. But, you know, first of all, I thought 
that no one was to have authority over others to begin with. You know, besides the absurdity of replacing gender with race in this hypothetical, the notion is negated by the fact that Mr. Graves said the passage is really about knowing no one having any authority over anyone else in the church. But yet in his hypothetical, he's saying that under certain circumstances, it is allowable, such as in the story that he was um, relating to us of black people that he deemed to be too ignorant. So there should not be any authority over anyone in the church, according to Mr. Graves, except for those whom he deems to be too ignorant. So I guess he believes in some kind of a aristocracy. But the thing is, Paul says nothing here of a, an intelligence litmus test. Paul is basing this structure on gender, whereas among men, one of the qualifications is knowledge that we find in other passages that speak to the qualifications of men in the offices of the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So I really don't understand how he got here or why, but it seems a little odd to say the least, but maybe he will salvage this ridiculous notion somehow as we continue on. Um, there's another example where, if, you, if anyone's read the book, Torches of Joy, where the Deckers, the Decker family, goes to this area in Papua New Guinea and uh, starts witnessing to this pagan tribe of natives in New Guinea. They don't have a written language. They don't uh, have any. They don't have any kind of education. They subscribe to a and, and practice a animistic pagan type religion. And uh, so they treat themselves like like animals, and they don't because they're pagans, and they don't uh, they don't understand lots of things. You you get the idea. The Deckers come and they uh, really teach them, and they start uh, preaching the gospel to them. And a lot of a lot of these natives get saved, and they uh, start learning how to read. Um, this happens a lot where the missionary comes to a tribe of people who don't have a written language and they invent a written language for them and translate the Bible into their own language. Um, if anyone's read the book Peace Child, that the same thing happens. It's a really similar story, but a different place, different island I can't remember the name of. So these people, these natives, um, they're kind of slippery for a long, long time in this book Peace Child. Uh, 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 torches of joy. I'm sorry. Um, they're kind of slippery for a long time. He'll, the Deckers will go back to America for a while, or go to a different area of the island for a few months, and come back. And these people are back into their witchcraft and uh, uh, practicing their animistic pagan religion, and they've reinstated their witch doctors and stuff like that, and having orgies, crazy stuff like that. They aren't very solid, but time passes and these people mature 
and they become more grounded in their faith and become more skilled in self-government and private judgment and submitting themselves to the word of God and their society improves and their their minds improve they learn how to read and they learn how to interpret what they read and then then lots of these natives start stepping up to the plate and they take a position of leadership and they uh, they start to understand that this sh it shouldn't be just uh, the Decker family who is leading our church because they won't be here forever and we have a duty to uh, fulfill our role as priests and kings in the kingdom of God. Again, I ask, how is this an exposition of 1 Timothy 2.12? Because remember, that, that is the subject at hand. And what does any of this have to do with the man-woman distinction that Paul is making? Would not the pagan men in the first century be just as ignorant as the pagan women in the same period who had just recently converted to Christianity? And wouldn't that mean that Paul would have rather said, but I suffer not an ignorant person to teach, nor to usurp authority over knowledgeable persons, but to be in silence. All that to say, our situation was similar in this culture that uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking to. The women were treated as inferior humans. They were barred from educating themselves. They were barred from reading or uh, learning anything. Religious matters, even in their pagan religion, were considered the duty of a man to uh, carry out and uh, learn and uh, uh, practice. That, that, was, that was considered the man's duty and not the woman, because women were uh, inferior in all these ways. They're, they were weaker, so they were to be subjugated. That's power religion. That's, that's paganism. And uh, their entire culture functioned that way. So the weaker vessel, the weaker, more vulnerable person is going to be treated like an animal that they own. And they're not going to be allowed to educate themselves. Now, where does Paul or any other apostle say any of these things? Oh, that's right. Nowhere. Now, without question, Christianity elevated women, just as it elevates all mankind. But that is not what Mr. Graves is talking about here. Even the pagans throughout history have understood that women were the weaker vessel, and societal structures were built upon what Paul describes as the distinct roles of men and women. And why is that? Because of the imprint of original creation that still the residue of which still resides in the heart of man. Now Mr. Graves even admits that the abuses of women have been because they are the weaker, softer, more delicate counterpart of man. So even in his language he denies his premise. But I'm still waiting to hear how all the translations of 1 Timothy 2 are incorrect and how that uh, part 
of the and and that they are part of the power religion cons conspiracy to subjugate women by the patriarchy so maybe he'll explain that in the next section Christianity came to these societies and turned everything on its head like I said they treated people in an entirely different way than everyone else in the world treated them and they treated each and every person as if they had value and uh, inherent inherent uh, yes an inherent value given to them by the image of God the little children that were discarded in the ditches that no one wanted were considered uh, trash these Christians went to the ditches and they rescued them to the point and it had gone on f until people would just bring their children to the Christians and give them their children instead of throwing them into the ditch uh, slaves uh, the practice of slavery very very similar to uh, American slavery although it wasn't based on race it was just based on uh, social status um, slaves were uh, had begun to be freed and taken in by these Christians and Paul said if if any slave has a chance to be free then he should take it because the head of every man is Christ and we should not be slaves to man because Christ is our head it's another thing to consider if we're thinking about women if Christ is our head and we aren't to be slaves to man what does that mean for a lady <sighs> We are still waiting for Mr. Graves to deal with the text, to give us, to exegete the text, and to also prove his assertion that all the English translations are incorrect. But, you see, this text has nothing to do with infanticide or slavery. And no one is talking about making women slaves. I mean, what is he even talking about? Comparing the historical and biblical role of women to slavery is not only insulting, but it's blasphemous against God. Natural and special revelation of womanhood is a glorious and distinct glory, honor, and privilege. And by the way, Paul wrote the epistle of Philemon to a first century slave owner, instructing him to, be, to graciously receive Onesimus, his runaway slave, back without any spite or revenge. Paul also wrote in 1 Peter 2.18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. In Ephesians 6, 5, he wrote, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. In Colossians 3, through verse 25, he writes, Servants, obey all things your masters obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye service as men pleasers but in singleness of heart fearing God and whatsoever you do do it hardly as to the Lord and not unto men 
knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. In 1 Timothy 6.1, Let as many servants as be under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he, of course, is to be rebuked. In Titus chapter 2, Paul writes, Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. But in spite of that, even though he's incorrect in this area as well, but None of this has anything to do with 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's, that's what he said was translated incorrectly. And we are still waiting for him to do the exegetical work to prove his point. I ramble too much. Um, what was I about to say? Oh, so Timothy women in this in the society of the church were they, they enjoyed a much more elevated and equal position just like everyone else and uh, nonetheless like these slaves in my in my hypothetical story that I talked about they still were in a position where they hadn't been treated like real humans for very long and their mind was, uh, their mind was, hadn't grown up in several kinds of ways. And they had been infantilized by their culture, and they were just now learning to be uh, uh, priests. At the, they were just now learning how to carry out their duties as a priestess that Christ, that Christ gave us. So... He tells them that they shouldn't be in a position where they teach over men. They shouldn't be imparting doctrines, and they shouldn't be uh, the ones at the forefront who combat false doctrines and interpret Scripture and teach others Scripture. And that, that's <clears throat> uh, that becomes easier to understand when we look at how they were treated in that society and compare it to how people were treated as inferior in our society, uh, ways that we relate to more slavery, American slavery was much more recent than this time. So we can kind of understand when the same thing happens if we... Mr. Graves, I am sorry, but you do not know what you are talking about. All you are giving us is conjecture and opinions. What you are engaging in is eisegesis instead of exegesis. Remember, you're supposed to be exegeting the text to show us what 
Paul was saying. That is the premise that you began in the very beginning of your podcast or live stream. Now the difference is, since maybe no one has explained this to you, is that eisegesis is when a reader imposes his interpretation into and onto the text, whereas exegesis is the process of drawing out the meaning from a text in accordance with the context and discoverable meaning of its author. So let's continue on. But we can understand what this looked like in this ancient culture when we look at similar things happening more recently. Um, but the second thing he tells these ladies not to do in this church is to usurp authority over men. And that's a different thing. Uh, that, that word is authentale. And that word means one who acts on his own authority or autocratic, an absolute master to govern or exercise dominion over another person. Excuse me. Hey, Josh. And with the Greek definitions that you were giving us, you're giving us nothing different than what the English translations actually say. Whom is Paul saying that women should not exercise authority over? Men. It has nothing to do with the knowledge of the women or the men. It is a gender distinction in reference to teaching and exercising authority. So Christ told us that we're not supposed to govern or exercise dominion over our brothers and sisters. So this, this becomes easy to understand. All he's telling them to do is not enjoy their, is not take advantage of their, their position of equality that Christ gave them and use that for evil and use that to dominate over others. Um, we don't, when we understand that, that becomes a blanket, a blanket statement for women not to uh, domineer over other people. And we don't have to. We don't have to make speculations about uh, whatever what Gnostic heresies they are involved in, or uh, what. Oh, my phone just died. What Gnostic heresies they are involved in, or what uh, what kinds of drama that was going on this in this church. We don't need to speculate about that. And our interpretation of the scripture here doesn't depend on speculations of what might have been happening because all we have to understand is women shouldn't dominate over men. And that's true of everybody. And the only kind of speculation we have to do for this to make sense is, well, I guess women were usurping authority over men and Paul tells them not to do that. That doesn't mean that men are able to suddenly get a pass to do the same thing. Because Christ told no one to do this. It shall not be so among you. Now, Mr. Graves has spent what seems like forever speculate, speculating about the peculiar situation and circumstances of the first century. And now all of a sudden, 
he is telling us that we do not have to speculate about what may or may not have been going on at the time because what the passage is saying is that no one, men or women, are to be usurping authority over anyone else. Then, what may I ask have you been doing throughout this whole presentation? but speaking in authority over everyone else to tell us what this verse actually means that everyone is getting wrong. If no one is to usurp authority, then wouldn't it also mean that no one is to teach? So why are you teaching? Listen, when professing Christians begin adopting postmodern thought, it is a road to nowhere. It is a place where there is no meaning for anything. Not only is it full of foolishness, but it is a damnable road. So let's read the passage that is in question again to see if it remotely lines up with anything that Mr. Graves is saying. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse number 9. In like manner also, that women... Because Paul had just addressed the men in verse number 8, and now he is focusing or singling out the women. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence, with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be silent, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. But, you see, it's easy to discount everything that was just said. When you hold to a view that all the translations are part of the patriarchal conspiracy, it is easy to discount everything stated when you hold to the postmodern view of deconstruction. To show you how deep and absurd this conspiracy theory is. Let's consider a liberal translation called the Living Bible. And it reads in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Women should listen and learn quietly and humbly. I never let a woman teach men or lord it over them. Let them be silent in your church meetings. Why? Because God made Adam first and afterwards he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was fooled by Satan, but Eve, and sin was the result. Well, maybe the NIV will say something different, because we know that there were women involved in that translation. But it reads, Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly, for God made Adam first, and afterwards he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. So, I guess even with women on the translation board, they're just part of the same patriarchal conspiracy. 
Well, he is correct about one thing. All the translations, no matter if they are actual word-for-word -word translations, paraphrases, whether they are liberal or conservative translations, they all say women are not to teach men or have authority over men because God made Adam first and it was the woman who was deceived by Satan. We should also point out that Paul ends 1 Timothy 2 with this passage directed at the women. And then in chapter 3, he deals with the offices of pastors and deacons. Enlisting the qualifications of pastors who are to be apt to teach, Paul says if a man desires the office, he desires a good work, and he is to be the husband of one wife. Notice Paul does not say a pastor is a man or a woman who is knowledgeable, but it is a man who has to meet the requirements of the office. And one of those requirements is to be a man. Yet we are still waiting. All this aside, we are still waiting for Mr. Graves to actually deal with the text and stop inserting his own opinions and speculations to prove to us that the English translations are not being faithful to the Greek text. And we completely miss the mark when we read these passages knowing things like Proverbs 31 where it tells us that women have the law of kindness on their tongue and they teach it and they speak about it. Now I must admit at this point I'm just trying to get through this without saying any bad words. Proverbs 31 says nothing about a woman teaching in the church or exercising ecclesiastical authority over men. Nothing. Zilch. Nothing to do with the order and structure of the church. Yet Mr. Graves just made application as if it does. I mean, you must either really be ignorant or immature in order to make that application. Now, I don't understand how anyone can make a mistake of that magnitude unless it is through willful ignorance. Proverbs 31 is not addressing the church. It is not addressing ecclesiastical polity, structure, or order. It is not addressing the authority of the home. It is addressing the attributes of a virtuous woman as an individual, as a wife, and as a mother. And we consider parts of Acts where this man Apollos was uh, preaching in the synagogue and this male man this guy who was a Christian a new Christian he began to speak boldly in the synagogue whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly so now he is using a descriptive text in order to overturn a prescriptive text. You see, Acts is describing a man and a woman, a husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, who befriended a new convert by the name of Apollos, who was a Jew. Now, although he was mighty in the scriptures and bold in his testimony, he had a complete uh, he had an incomplete understanding of Christian faith and practice.
Luke says that they took him unto them, seemingly as like, you know, into their home, to expound unto him the way of God more perfectly. Nothing is said here about Priscilla teaching or usurping authority in any capacity, much less an ecclesiastical uh, jurisdiction. She is simply listed with her husband because she is a helpmeet to him in this matter, as she most assuredly was in all other matters to her husband as well. But even if, and of course that is a very big if, but even if there was irregularity here, it is still descriptive and not prescriptive. And if there is any ir irregularity here, and we got to remember, the text does not say anything of the sort, but even if there was, it is descriptive, and later Paul would give the proper prescription for the churches in his epistles. If our authoritarian interpretation of Paul's words about women apply in the way that they do, Aquila's wife, Priscilla, just violated that by teaching this man who had some things wrong or had some rhetoric imperfect by teaching him the ways of God more perfectly. Well, the text does not say that she did the teaching, or in this case, it was actually personal discipleship. But nothing is said, and the exact details of how all this was conducted is not clear, because it is not stated. So Mr. Graves is asking us to take a passage that is not clear in and of itself, to interpret a passage in 1 Timothy 2 that is clear in and of itself. Well, shouldn't it be the other way around? And we read in church history, not just church history, but all over the scriptures too, about female prophetesses. It was like a common thing to see where like the daughters of Philip, I think there were four, they were all prophetesses and they like went down in history as prophetesses. They were famous for that. This gives me some real nightmares from the past from some crazy things that we dealt with, I don't know, 20 years ago concerning some folks who were all hung up on this prophetesses thing. Well, first, the Bible does not call Philip's daughters prophetesses. It says that they prophesied. Now, we need to remember that prophets, that the office of a prophet was an extraordinary office that ceased in the church at the close of the apostolic period. Joel prophesied that in that it shall come to pass afterward. Now this is Old Testament. He's prophesying about the future. He said, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. On the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were being accused of being drunk, because of the signs and wonders that were being demonstrated, Peter stood up and said, You men of Judea 
and all that dwell at Jerusalem. Be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And, all my, and on my servants and my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, Peter is saying that these, the day that he lived in, when the, these things were being done, the, that he was saying that this is the day. You see, these Pentecostal signs and wonders in the apostolic first century were the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. They were extraordinary. And Paul does not prescribe these signs and wonders and make them ordinary for the churches in his epistles for the order of the church. Again, we have Mr. Graves taking something that is descriptive and making it prescriptive. Now, I should also point out that even in extraordinary times, the idea of prophetesses being common is not true. They were not everywhere to be found in the scriptures, and the few who claimed to be in history were always quacks and heretics. And uh, uh, <clears throat> where Paul talks, I think, to uh, in the book of Philippians, he talks about women who worked with him side by side in contending for the faith. We see all over the early church, the early church, women enjoying a position of equality right, right up there with the men, not men dominating over them, not women being permitted to dominate over men, but them, uh, them going about the work of God together as brothers and sisters, fellow image bearers, and tearing down satanic strongholds. So because women are a part of the church, to Mr. Graves, this means that Second Timothy cannot be saying what it so clearly seems to be saying. He is saying that because women are a part of the church, that that means, that either means that they are to teach and to usurp authority over men, even though earlier he said no one is to be teaching and usurping authority over anyone. Well, of course, that makes no sense. Plus, that is not what the Bible says at all. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes, But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. In verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 11 and 9, he says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Paul writes, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And then, of course, in the text that we're supposedly dealing with in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. This sounds very, sim uh, this sounds very familiar. Like in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God said unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, that is what the women are not to do based upon the created order. So, what are the women to do according to the Bible? Well, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 3 it says that the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. In 1 Timothy 5.14, he writes, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. In Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation or the behavior of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold and or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Now you see, these are prescriptive passages that are all over the New Testament. So who are you going to believe? Mr. Graves and his insertions and deletions or the apostles? Um, so this video isn't to advocate for woman pastors. As I said at the beginning, that's why I said that, but I rambled off into another subject. I'm not trying to argue for woman pastors because that just slips right back into the same, into the same error where one person has power over another person by, by nature of his position or named office. So I'm not saying women should be pastors. It, that, I'm not saying women should have power over men. I'm saying just the opposite. Women shouldn't have power over men in the church, and men in, in the church shouldn't have power over women. So now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is not saying that women are not to usurp 
that they are not to teach nor to usurp authority over men. But it's also actually saying that men are not to teach and to usurp authority over women. No, I guess maybe then he's not arguing that women should teach or usurp authority. He's not arguing, arguing for women to be pastors. He is arguing that no one should teach and no one should have authority and no one should be pastors. Now, I know there's been this liberal push in the past wanting to take everything masculine in the Bible and also attribute it to women, but I've never, until recently, you know, never heard of the idea of wanting to take what is feminine and attribute it to the masculine. So let's see here in relation to his um, assertion that that passage is saying that no one should be pastors and no one should be teachers and no one should have authority. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul says, and he, and he gave, talking about God, God gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Paul instructs Titus in, first, in, in excuse me in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 he says for this cause or for this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are wanting or lacking and ordain elders in every city as I appointed you in Acts 14:23 it says and when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. 2 Timothy 2.2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Acts 16.4, and as they went through the cities, they delivered them, talking about the churches, the decrees for to keep, or the decrees, the commandments that they are to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace amongst yourselves. Let's continue on with Mr. Graves's presentation. There's a lot of other scriptures about submission and uh, subjection that we've got to go into at another time. We've got to figure this stuff out. Mr. Graves, you will never figure this out unless God is merciful unto you in changing your heart and opening your eyes. You see, we have given you plenty of other passages on submission and you cannot simply dismiss them all I mean you can but 
that is not serious exegesis, nor is it taking the word of God as your final authority. You see, Mr. Graves, and I'm not only just addressing you, but all who have been duped by this damnable heresy, that your blindness is due to the fact that you are resisting the Holy Spirit who inspired the holy apostles to write these things for our instruction. You refuse to be instructed, and your own rebellion will consume you until you completely deny the faith. That is the path you are on. That is the end of the road. You see, it will leave you empty and bitter unless you find a place of repentance and submit yourself to Christ, His Word, and His Church. You see, I fear for you, as it may be said of you, as Paul expressed concern for the Corinthians, that if they did not remember what he had preached unto them, that they may have believed in vain. If you do not accept the words of the Holy Spirit as passed down from the apostles to the church in Scripture, you will have believed in vain. This is simply not just an internal doctrinal disagreement amongst the saints. This is a rejection of the authority of Christ and his word. Our Reformed forefathers rightly said in their confessions that the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. They also wrote, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures, and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. I pray that God will be merciful to you in graciously giving you a full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth of God and its divine authority by the inward work of the Holy Spirit with the word in your heart. Um, we'll see a, that when we're having these discussions, we'll see someone like Mr. Spurgeon come along and say, you're not giving me my due deference as a man and a pastor. And poor little Liz Sachs, has, he, he like quotes these verses that I've been reading. And Liz Sachs says, ah, you're misinterpreting these, these scriptures. They have to be being misinterpreted because we don't rule over one another. And our, our title, our office, our position doesn't give us power over one another if we're following Christ. But um, we're kind of in the beginning stages of hammering this stuff out, so we can't really tell Mr. Spurgeon 
what this actually means because we ourselves haven't figured it out yet. And that's okay. We, like we, uh, we can look at this stuff and understand what there's no way it can mean. There's no way it can mean that men have, by, by nature of their anatomy, have, uh, have absolute or even uh, limited power over women. We can understand it can't mean that. The Mr. Spurgeon he is referring to is a pastor at Sovereign King Church in southern Indiana. So here he is mocking a pastor who on this issue is upholding what is taught in Scripture and has been taught in the church for 2,000 years. And here is another example of when people mock those who believe the Bible, they put on a redneck voice as if Bible believers are stupid when really the stupidity is in his own arguments. But you see, Mr. Blind, uh, Mr. Graves is too blind to see it. Not only is it scary, but it's also very arrogant. But isn't this the warning that we find in Scripture, in Proverbs 12:15? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. You admit you do not know what the Scriptures teach on this matter. But yet you were so bold as to say you know what they do not teach because they cannot mean what they say. How can you seriously make such a claim? And even though you cannot exegete these passages, you say it's okay since you know the Bible's teaching on gender roles and distinctions cannot mean what it says. What can it not mean that when that is what it says. The Bible is clear, and there's no denying it. And throughout this whole presentation, your only purpose has been to delete what the Bible actually says and insert your own presuppositions. Well, this is finally the last part of the program. But it's okay for us to be in the beginning stages of all of of figuring this stuff out and not be able to say okay this is what it means but in the but in the meantime we have to be figuring it out figuring out what it means and uh, I would invite your help on all of this uh, let's let's go let's get into all these scriptures and figure out what they mean have discussions about them We've kind of been distracted from dealing with these actual scriptures and figuring out what they mean because we've been dealing with people who say, this is what it means. And we've been dealing with the pushback of people who say all the things that all the things that we've all heard said. And we haven't taken all that much time to figure out what these scriptures mean. So we should probably put more emphasis on that while dealing with people who, uh, like Mr. Spurgeon, and say, who just come along trolling and say, you need to give me my due deference as a man and a pastor. That's easy to tear down. But it'll be much easier to tear down with people who are more skilled in uh, defending this kind of power religion. We'll need to get this stuff hammered out if we're going to continue. 
I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, let's keep doing this and let's uh, keep figuring these scriptures out because it's important and it's going to come. It's going to become more important as we press on in dealing with uh, dealing with power religionists and as more power religion comes out of the woodwork of people's thought. I think that's all I have to say. Um, forgive the. Forgive the rambliness and unorganized nature of the video, but uh, thanks. Let's figure this thing out. As if the apostles did not already have it figured out, and that it hasn't uh, been upheld by the church for the last 2,000 years. So they are coming up with something new that no one else has able, been able to figure out. It's very arrogant. And I also have to say at this point that no, because you asked the question, no, what you are saying does not make any sense. You never did deal with the text directly, nor did you prove that these passages are translated incorrectly as you said they were. The only thing you did was to take vague passages and insert your presupposition into them. And then say, because of that, that the clear and direct texts cannot mean what they say. I don't know about you, but after that, Paul's instruction to Timothy comes to mind. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Or at the very least, go get you a Mountain Dew. To try to recover from this. You have been listening to Standing Firm. And we will see you again next time. And until then. May God bless and keep you. Thank you for listening to Standing Firm. Please consider helping us in this battle for Christendom as we assault the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can write us at Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity, P.O. Box 1125, Mooresville, Indiana, 46158. That is Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity, P.O. Box 1125, Mooresville, Indiana, 46158. Or you can visit us online at reformedholytrinity.org.